everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Hey, everybody, this is Wayne, and I am so excited. We have got John Liu with us, and we have got Lisa from New Jersey, and Mark, who doesn't ever like to show his webcam, so he puts a picture of my family up there, um, and uh, Mark would be in Bangladesh. Areeb will not be with us. It's actually very late, his time and Mark's, but Mark usually actually works till about eight coming up here an hour, about an hour. Anyway, we're going to have a lot of fun tonight. I have been a fan of John's. I don't know if he remembers, but he spoke at um, the very first session that was um, Permaculture Live in San Diego. And I first, that's the first time I heard you speak live, John. And that was many years ago now, probably 10 even. Um, but then um, I've just followed him. He's doing some amazing things. We're going to just talk about a whole broad array of subjects. More important than any, though, I want you guys to be willing to jump in with your thoughts and your questions. So, I'm going to just point out that there is a little, there's two places you can do that. You can do it through the chat or you can do it through the Q&A, either one of those. Mark is going to be watching those. John and I, we don't have to, John, we don't have to look at that at all. Mark will keep track of it for us. Looks like John's wife might have just come in behind him there. I was going to say hi as she walked in. He is, he is very fortunate. He's in Bali right now. They're on vacation there. And uh, Areeb, if he was on, I know he'd be excited because when he's been in rugby tournaments in Bali, he said it's just the greatest place to be able to go. So um, we started just a little early. We're still a little bit early. It's a couple minutes before the top of the hour. But we wanted to try something. Mark, would you throw on that first series of slides that we're going to kind of start out with? And let's see what those look like to see if we got rid of the some of the pixelation that was there when we did it first time. We were doing this in practice and getting some pixelation. So we wanted to see how it's gonna go. Cause look at all these little videos and, and slides. We're gonna talk over them. They're, they're all gonna be, so it's black now, Mark. We'll see what comes up in just a second. So John, you asked about numbers. We also live stream simulcast right now to both Facebook Live and YouTube Live. And we never know how many are on those channels. Um, we'll know at the end, but we really don't know while we're doing it. So we're going to those. And are we live streaming anywhere else right now? Also, maybe maybe directly into Kajabi, Mark, or where else? Uh, we, are on, we are on Facebook and YouTube right now. Okay. And you know it's, it's black in the background, so we're not seeing ten, anything. Ten. Sorry. Okay, so it didn't come up? Uh, no, nope, it did not. All right, let me try again. There it is. Now we have it. 
Okay. There, now though, that 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 pixelation, yeah, is still in there, Mark. So try to see if you can move off of your screen because you're right. That probably is the background from. It's just a little bit at the top. It's actually showing most. It's not going to be that horrible. Um, that's better, but we still have that little bit of gray at the top. Okay. And as we talk about various different people here, why don't you just sort of scream or you can even just go through them as you go. And uh, well, that's my wife. My, the first part was my, oh, we're back to the beginning. Okay. So that this is my father and my mother. Um, my father obviously was from China and he passed away five years ago. And my, my mother's still alive at 104. And uh, she's, my father's Chinese, but my mother uh, is American of Scottish descent. So wow. strangely, strangely, her relatives, her ancestors came over to North America in the 1500s. So I'm a son of the revolution and a son of the Confederacy, if you can imagine. Mm -hmm. what Maybe the only Chinese son of the Confederacy, who knows? And um, yeah, I've been, uh, of course, they got married. When they got married, it was kind of strange. There were still laws on the books saying that interracial marriage wasn't exactly legal, wow. but they got married and not only did they get married in Nashville, Tennessee, but their marriage was publicized on the front page of the Tennessean newspaper. So that was a very odd phenomenon. And was that because of the interracial nature or did they have some other? No, I, I don't think so. I think my father was a little bit like Rick from uh, Casablanca. You know, he, he was, he was, uh, he had, Ricky Ricardo, Ricky Ricardo. <laughs> uh, he, he was an officer in the Nationalist Chinese Army, and he was in command in Burma, and he got really badly wounded. And the next in command was an American sergeant. And my father basically said, I'm dead, leave me here. And the, the sergeant from America said, well, you just relinquish command, I'm in command. And he fought it out with the Japanese and took my father out of the jungle. So the only reason I can appear on your podcast is because of this strawberry farmer from Tennessee. And so when my, then my father was transferred from the, the Asian, from Burma to first to India, then to Egypt, then to London where he got better. And they gave him a promotion and he became a staff officer and he followed the invasion into Europe. And at the end of the, when the, when the Germans um, surrendered, he thought he would go back to China through the Soviet Union, but he was a staff officer in the Allied forces and they didn't want any staff officers going through the Soviet Union as they were grabbing bits of wherever they were. And so he went to America. And then when he went to America, he thought he'd go see the sergeant. So he went to Tennessee and he met my mother and they got married, and then the communists took over in China. So for him to go to China um, was very difficult because he had been a landlord, his family were landlords, and he was an officer in the Nationalist Chinese Army. So he, he stayed in America until Nixon went to 
went to went to China. I think you can play that so that we see my yeah, wife. Why don't yeah. you play oh, maybe, it, Mark, and yeah, that way then we'll, play. Play. we'll go yeah, through. Yeah, that's, that's good. So this is my wife, Cosima, who's just given me a pen, which is nice. And um, and she's Cosima, and she actually, we met in China. She came from Germany at, uh, as one of the first German exchange students in China. Uh, in the 1979, and I went to China in 1979 from the United States. So then we met in China, and it was an interesting period where China was very poor and uh, kind of, I mean, it was, it was, it had been isolated, and so it was almost like going back in time. Maybe like if you go to Cuba and you see all those old cars and so on, you know, you, you kind of think, well, that's, that's interesting. Hey, it's still not running. Why are we, why are we moving? Yeah, you have to be in, oh, yeah, there, yeah. So you have to, yeah, just leave, let it play and then it'll be let fine. These are our kids. Um, but this is back in the 1980s. So they were cute kids, but of course they grew up and now they're cute adults. Um, the oldest son is 42 and he's the reason that I'm here in Bali because he he had an intervention and said I had to have a vacation. And we built a house in China. So this is where we've been living for the last 30 some years. And it was, we, we lived in the diplomatic compound before. And uh, I was working for CBS News for about a decade. And then we built this house and uh, I started making documentary films and everybody got old. That's my father and mother uh, a few years ago and the kids, uh, you know, all grew up. And, um, you know, <laughs> China changed. It transformed from poverty and isolation into a kind of an interesting um well, a superpower. So it's, it's a strange phenomenon to be an ancient civilization that's a modern superpower. And I was there documenting this. So I was basically a professional observer for all of my adult life. And I was concentrated, of course, on politics and on economics and on culture. And to some extent, these you know, this collapse of the Soviet Union and Tiananmen and some of these other bigger things in the, ninth, in the late 20th century. So it was pretty dramatic time. And um, then eventually I got tired of journalism after the collapse of the Soviet Union and, and Tiananmen, it had become kind of more and more dangerous and I wasn't really that keen on it. So that basically I, I shifted. So if we switch to the second one instead of this first one, it'll be better now. Yeah, uh, John, can we stop for just a second? I have a couple of absolutely. questions. We are now literally just really going and there's a lot of you out there. So please ask some questions, not you know whenever you go. Mark will decide what the right time is to ask us. But one quick question is how, what percentage of the 
of the Chinese population is still, you would say, a little more third worldish today, because that's what we don't understand as Americans. We don't hear that. We just don't hear what what that status is. Well, everything is in transition in China. So, um, you know, like I, I would say, one one thing that you might want to consider is that the the entire population of the United States would be approximately equivalent to the number of yuppies in China. So like the entire population, 325 or 340 million, something in there is, is like, that's the population of young urban professionals. And then, so you have other people of course, who, who have grown up in the countryside. And, and right now, one of the things that's happening is, is a, a reevaluation of development because they kind of overbuilt um, housing because of they thought real estate was the way forward. And so they were into this real estate bubbling. And I think that's not going to be the way forward. And they're, they're working on how can they have communities that are functional and sustainable in the, in the countryside. And also how can you do that in the city? So it's, it's like a big experiment and it's, it's been a, like a giant experiment all the time. So if we go on to the- Yeah, let's plateau, go to the second set of slides now. Great transition, John, just like a journalist would do. So the second, you know, like the Lust Plateau was really what changed me away from politics and, and economics and culture. But in fact, it actually discusses ways forward for politics and economics and culture. But it, that was not the first thing that came to mind. So I'm not sure if, if Mark's going to- Mark, Mark, it's not playing yet. You got you to gotta bring it up. And then, um, and you should probably optimize for video when you when you use the Zoom uh, share screen part. Um, but it's interesting that uh, when I got out to the List Plateau, that was when the World Bank. I had already shifted to making uh, documentaries, and and uh, the the World Bank asked me to go out to the List Plateau to film a, a baseline study. So this is the cradle of Chinese civilization in the upper and middle reaches of the Yellow River. And the whole thing is approximately the size of France. It's 640,000 square kilometers. And it's named for its soil type, which is Lust. And what was extraordinary about this was that it was more or less like a desert. And I, I was kind of wondering, like, how could the largest ethnic group on the planet come from a place that looked more like the moon than the earth? You know, so as I was thinking about this, I, I understood the history. I studied the history of China. So I, I understood the ancient history and I understood the modern history because I was covering it. And this is to the south west of the list plateau so it's fully functional ecosystem in sichuan but this is what it looked like in the list plateau so this idea that this was so fundamentally destroyed was very strange and the people were you know deeply poor and it was sort of um horrific 
situation for them. And this had been the, the early dynasties were all based there. And then I started to understand the ecological impacts. So the ecological impacts were enormous because the hydrology was disrupted, the vegetation, the biodiversity, the soil fertility. And then I started to realize, well, oh, this is, this is how evolutionary succession has had self-organized to regulate the temperature, the weather, and the climate. But humans had in ignorance destroyed this, and it was causing all sorts of catastrophic situations. The flooding, there were 1,500 floods in recorded history which killed millions and you know, basically created the character of the Chinese where they had to rebuild all the time their civilization because it was being destroyed. And it caused massive dust storms and desertification. And it was, it was, it was just a huge impact. And as I started to understand this, then I began to consider, are there other ways forward and what does it mean to to have this cycle of poverty and degradation and is there another way out or is human civilization destined you know to do this again and again and again and again so we could stop this one now and go go to the third one if you want to or you could ask another question if if, if that brings up anything uh, let me before I think we need a little bit of a just to make sure we're on. Mark, is are the Q and A open? Because I don't see anything coming in from the audience. There's a pretty good crowd out there. My guess is something's wrong still. So, yeah, it's open. Oh, it is. Q and A. Yep. And chat. Well, everybody, I just want to comment. When I first heard John speak about the Lust Patrol Plateau, um, which was just amazing to me. I wasn't able to look at it the same way you guys just did. John didn't have that slideshow. John, you you early on you were talking about this to the regenerative community, the the permaculture community. You didn't have this is this makes it a lot more visible for us. So the more recent views that we got, that was in areas that are still degraded, correct? And and or are those old videos that we saw? That's old video. That's that's from that's from the 1990s. I I, I went out in 94, 95, but I, I went out many, many times because I became obsessive about understanding this. And I I had this feeling or you know this recognition that this was more important than any of the political or economic things that I'd seen. And I realized that in journalism, all my colleagues were like a herd, you know, following all the, the, the things. And I was there alone in, in the middle of the desert and, and contemplating like, what does this mean? What is my role? What, you know, what am I seeing? What, what does this mean? What is, and having been a, professional observer for my entire life, I just, that curiosity and, and determination to follow the story, that's, that's pretty much what, uh, I think they're putting um, questions into the chat, 
Maybe. Yeah, let's go in. Yeah, and let's go into the next slide, Mark, the next uh, presentation. So, yeah, the, the next one is restoration. And, and basically what happened was that the, the, um, the, the Chinese government had asked the World Bank to finance um, a, a major, I think, as far as I know, it's the largest, you know, if not the largest, then certainly one of the largest development projects ever. So the 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 um, the pilot project was thirty five thousand square kilometers. So that's essentially the the size of Belgium, and it was to make this area green. You know, to trans trans tra transform this this space, which. When you first went out there and you saw this and you thought, well, okay, you're going to restore that, uh, maybe it wasn't. It wasn't really like that's what you you thought was going to actually happen. It looked like uh, the idea was to maybe reduce poverty and and especially to reduce the sedimentation levels. And and the the techniques which were used were extremely simplistic. They just basically said everything that you're doing is illegal. So you can't farm on the sides of hills, you can't cut down trees, and you can't free range goats and sheep. So, in order for them not to do those things, they had to have other behaviors. So, they basically trained everyone in restoration. And in training everyone in restoration, they paid them. So, they paid them for like 10 years to learn how and to do restoration. So this also suggests a completely different economy because if we're looking at, at the collapse of our ecological systems and we're seeing that that's affecting our civilization, then maybe we wanna realize that actually our behaviors are what is causing this. And if our behaviors were to change and we were to do something else, what would that be? <laughs> And, you know, like if you can take the, the most degraded place on the earth and you can transform it and bring back the hydrological cycle, soil fertility, biodiversity, then why don't we do that? And this is kind of what came to me. Now, this is what it looked like in 1994 when I first went out there. This is a place called Hojago in uh, Shanxi province near uh, Yenan. And this is what it looked like in 2009. So I made, a, I made a film called Hope in a Changing Climate in 2009, which was broadcast on the BBC. And this was the transition. Here to get, is again from uh, 1994, and this is gonna transform into 2009. So when, when you saw this and you realized, oh my goodness, actually what is what is possible became the, the question you know like not what is impossible but you know like what could we do if this were our global intention if this was the central intention of human civilization because we could see that this would infiltrate and retain moisture it would lower surface temperatures it would 
restores biodiversity, it restores fertility and productivity. And in, in the agricultural sense, it increased productivity by reducing the area in, in cultivation. So the, the logic of ecology, eco-logic, is very important to understand here. So, <clears throat> you know, this was the main finding that it's possible to rehabilitate large-scale damaged ecosystems. Wow. So that's that, Mark. You can drop that and, off. And, and John, at this point, so we're now, um, you know, 2023, of the entire 35,000 square kilometers, um, what percentage is still left to be, is left to be reduced? No, they, they've, they've gone far beyond the 35,000 square kilometers. That was done. That was done in 10 years. And then the Chinese government has something where it basically it looks at things as prototypes. So when they did the rural reform in the very beginning in the 80s, they took, I think, six counties, three in Sichuan and three in Anhui, and they, they just said, okay, the, the, the communization uh, is not working. So we're going to distribute all the land back to the, the peasants and they can choose what to do themselves. And we'll see what happens. So the first year in those six counties, they doubled the productivity just by choosing to do that because they were so motivated personally. And in the second year, it doubled again. And so when they saw that, they said, okay, that's enough. The whole country is gonna go, go this way. We're gonna stop with that and we're gonna go to rural reform. And so this was the beginnings of these things in the 80s, rural reform, urban reform. I mean, they had the one child policy, which reduced the, temp the, the population growth. So if they hadn't done that, you know, I, <laughs> they have 1.4 billion, you know, they, would they have two or, you know, it's just not possible to imagine that they could feed that amount of people or whatever. So, so they, they made these hard decisions, but they actually physically changed the, the outcomes. And they did that with this. So as soon as they saw what this did, they made it national policy. So the Chinese have been increasing. So if you look at the principles of this, it's basically biodiversity, biomass, and accumulated organic matter. So if you, if you realize that evolutionary succession which we're going to look at if we want if we want to the next one is evolutionary succession so if, if you could bring that up then um the next one will show you the the thinking yeah that's perfect so if that if that just rolls we'll be good so play it make sure it's it's playing i see that it's not moving okay um so in evolutionary succession this is kind of what i started to realize that I was seeing was that in evolutionary succession back 3.8 billion years ago, or even at the cre creation of the earth 4.567 billion years ago, the earth was barren and it was hot and it was had gases in the atmosphere that we couldn't breathe. But over a long period of evolution, it transformed. And the basis for this is a biochemical photoreactive process photosynthesis. And so 
what we see is the self organization and self replication of life forms that are co evolving a system to hold moisture close to the earth to recycle and uh, process the temperatures on the earth. And essentially it's biology affecting the physics. So imagine over 3.8 billion years, the vegetation and, and the animal kingdoms, all life co-evolves to maintain a perfect system. And then into this emerges a bipedal primate that has a really big frontal lobe and that's human beings. And these human beings start to think, well, oh, look, you know, there's everything we need here on the earth. Let's cut it down. And when, when doing that, they don't understand that it's, it's a process, it's a system. It's not about resources, it's about functionality. And when you lose the functionality, you lose everything. You lose the system that is self-replicating. Now that's just a cat video, so you'll like me. But um, anyway, um, always works on the internet, cat videos, I'm told. Um, but, what, what, what we see is that evolutionary succession is real, it's functional, and it's not about productivity, and it's not about income, it's about outcome. You know? And so when we, when we change the, the, the equation to talk about income instead of outcome, we're kind of missing the point. And so I actually had the opportunity after studying in China to just go everywhere in the world. I had all kinds of uh, scientific um, things, but I, I think we should skip that because we're gonna run out of time if we, if we go too far. But I, I was sent to Africa. I was sent all around the world. I worked with IUCN for a number of years. I, I worked with, I, I studied with uh, Reading University. I had fellowships to several different institutions. And as I, as I was doing this, you know, I thought, well, I'm just a cameraman, what do I know? And then I started being asked to speak to scientific enclaves and, you know, they were not saying you're wrong. <laughs> they were saying, yeah, yeah, that's true. So if this is true, then I started to realize, oh my goodness, this is the, the key to transformational change on a planetary scale. So, yeah, um, we could go to Paradise Lost now, stopping this and going to the next one. It, I'll, I'll talk about how, what I was seeing, what it meant to me. Hey, people are coming in from Beijing. Yes, yeah, we just had somebody from Beijing. John, real quick question. Here in the US, our degradation has not probably been as extreme in areas. And in, in places, for example, I drove through Wyoming yesterday uh, on I-80 where there are places you could look at that would look just like that area you showed where prior to where you were in 94. However, 
the erosion has nothing to do with man. There have never been any, any human development. It's, it's totally a desert and there is rainfall that comes in huge amounts and then there is no rainfall for the whole rest of the year. And it causes huge erosion. The soil is not less. It, it, is, it is totally a sandy soil. There's very little organic matter in the soil today. Um, but we still, we still have agriculture in this country that is dominated by industrial pesticide, herbicide, hell. Is that not the case through most of China? Has most of China gone to a regenerative agriculture approach? The U.S. has certainly not at all. <laughs> so, as you know. Well, um, there, there, there are some serious differences. I mean, if, if you think about, like, my ancestors on my mother's side went to North America in the 1500s. And before that, you had Native Americans who, at least for 15,000 years, were, were, were stewarding the natural systems. Yes. So, you know, Africa, South Central America, North America, and large parts of Asia, they were pristine until colonization. So you, you have to look at, at feudalism, domination, and the expression of what I would call the dominant geopolitical uh, paradigm now. So when, when people decided, okay, I mean, look at the Catholic uh, decree of discovery or what do they call it? The, and, you know, saying, okay, you can go and take slaves, you can kill people, you can do all these things and colonize these people because they're not fully human. Well, this is ridiculous. You know, that, that was crazy. And that, that effect of that is still happening. Now that effect in the United States means that the impacts became came only later, like in 1849 in California, when people showed up for gold mining or this kind of thing. So they cut all the trees. I mean, 97% of the redwoods and, and sequoias are gone. Now, if you understand what a climax equilibrium does to, to maintain temperature and eco, ecological functionality, and then you realize that 97% of that system has been destroyed, well, you're going to have, let's imagine long-term drought, or you're going to have fires, <laughs> you're going to have, uh, you know, you know, this is what's happening. Th then you're going to have floods, because, you know, you're going to have lost the, the vegetative cover and the ability to maintain moisture near the surface. And when the rains do come, it's going to wash away your topsoil. So the, the situations are different. In China, you had one of the earliest places of settled agriculture 10 or 12,000 years ago. So, you know, the, the, the impacts there are quite clear, but the impacts in the United States are quite clear too. And in a very short time, during uh, trying to convert the plains into agriculture, they created the dust bowls in the in the in the early 20th century and you know that was one of the biggest restoration projects ever with the the civilian conservation corps 
I think 5% of American males work in, in restoration for nine years. And they did a really good job. And it was probably only because of that, everybody thinks the Second World War is what caused the economic boom, but actually there was no ecological crisis in the second half of the 20th century in North America, except for maybe toxins. And so you have, you have the, the growth of toxicity, but you know, so this was very interesting. And so now we're looking at this situation on a planetary scale where you have the breakdown and disruptions to societies and you have ecological dysfunction at a, at, at a tremendous planetary scale. So we really need to realize that there, there are answers to this and, and we, we know what it means. I think we should move forward. Maybe yeah, let's keep going. Ian, everybody, we are going to run out of time if we don't yeah, let Do you want to? Yeah, sorry, Wayne. I just wanted to see there were some questions and I wanted to know if you wanted to wait and, and let's take wait them at the a, end. Yeah, let's wait just a little. I saw okay. one that just came in about the Palouse Prairie. And I, I do think that's a great example of something that we could talk about forever. But I lived there, by the way, Craig, in the 1970s. And I, I still visit it regularly. And just in 50 years, it has changed and it's a loss soil. It, it used to be, have the highest wheat production in the world in an industrial sort of manner. It was not done in any kind of a regenerative sort of manner. And today it, it is losing its productivity in just 50 years, let alone a thousand years. So that's a great example of a place that if things don't change and change pretty quickly and dramatically, there won't be the kind of production of wheat that they have in, the, in that area. Anyway, John, why don't we go, Mark, to the next uh, Paradise Lost? Here we go. Well, yeah, let's, let's not stay on this too long, but 10 to 12,000 years ago, humans began to do settled agriculture. And this was a major, major change. And when, when you realize this constant increase of biomass, bio necromass and biodiversity and then you realize that in human civilization we've reversed evolutionary succession so there's always less biodiversity always less biomass and always less accumulated organic matter now that is a clue to exactly what's happening and when i as i was doing this study i was realizing oh i'm studying dysfunction and when I started to understand fully dysfunction, then I really wanted to understand functionality. And this took me to, to other systems. And every civilization that didn't understand this went in the same way. So there's, it's, it's you know, irrefutable that if human beings do this, you get the same result. So, I mean, Einstein has told us that you're not going to solve the problems with the same thinking which with, with which you created the problems. You're going to have to have a paradigm shift. And that paradigm shift is, is, is that we can change. So I would, I would if you want to go to science, 
science communication or to common land or to the camps. You can, you know, whatever you want to do is fine because I'm, 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 I am certain we're going to run out of time now. So let's, let's just, let's go to the camps and communities or to common land. You might want to, common land might be of interest to, to many of the people. So over, over the years, now it's 30 years almost since I started to do this study. And what we're seeing is that it's completely possible to restore ecological function. And so that has to be, logically, that has to be the central intention of human civilization. Nothing else matters. Because if we're on this slide that is degrading the landscapes, then we, we have to change the, the trend line to go up. And where we make the intervention, that is the paradigm shift. So maybe I can ask Mark to pull forward or start it or you know go forward somehow. Play that, play that Mark, please. Okay, it's playing. So, so I mean, th this, this understanding that it's possible to rehabilitate large-scale degraded landscapes is critically important because we have been eating the earth or just, you know, just consuming the earth, but we don't have to because the evolutionary systems created constant renewal. And if we understand what this is, then we get a completely different outcome than what we are having now. So if, if we let the natural systems cycle, it's possible to rehydrate dehydrated biomes. It's possible to take sand and add organic material and microbes and, and water and have fully functional soils. And in many cases, including the Sahara, including the Sinai Peninsula, all of these places have at one time been fully functional. So, and I've been measuring the temperature differentials and they're, they're huge. So we're not talking about 1.5 degrees centigrade differences. We're talking about 45 degrees differences between exposed soils on the, this is an outlier because it's on the desert, but the Chinese have built landscapes through the desert where they've reduced the temperature to 25 degrees centigrade from 70 degrees centigrade. That would be like 158 to 75 Fahrenheit. You know, that's extraordinary. So if we understand this and we use what we know and we realize that biology was self-organizing and self-replicating in order to process the surface temperatures, the hydrology and the basically the physics, then we have disrupted the physics by disrupting the biology. If we put back the, 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 um, the biology, we can restore the physics. And if we restore the physics, future generations will have a fully functional earth system. That, and and it, it will have it either way, because if, if we don't restore the 
the biology, then the earth will shake us off. You know, we will, we, we're not, you know, we're, we're, we have a special function as human beings, which is cognition, which is consciousness, but we're not good at it. So if we, if we fail at our special evolutionary trait, we're going to be, we're going to go extinct. Now, what's interesting about this line going down is when you make an intervention and the Chinese made an intervention which transformed the outcome, that's exactly what we need to do. I hope this is still moving. Um, yes, so we need to understand this paradigm shift and we need to understand it as a civilization, as, as, as humanity. We need to act as a species on a planetary scale. Because if we all understand this and we all do this, it's not that difficult to, to infiltrate and retain moisture. It's not that difficult to ensure you know, productivity. And now this, I mean, back in the early 2000s, I was being given fellowships and sent to Africa. And in Africa, when, when I presented this, and I mean, you might call it a third world kind of a situation, but they were a developing country. And when I was sent there, they listened to this. And so I think the next one actually does have audio. It's, it's where I'm speaking to Africans, um, but it just in just a moment, it should be coming up, yeah. So this is Rwanda. Rwanda and Ethiopia were very successful. Uh, Tanzania, not so much. South Africa, to some extent, too, was pretty good. And then, you know, so I've worked in a number of African countries over time. And many things that I've seen in Rwanda remind me of some of the things that I've seen in China. The Chinese government was asking this generation and all the generations alive today to change the course of human history, to take those denuded, the denuded landscape that they, they had and somehow alter this. So this is, this is a letter saying, thanks for coming to Rwanda, we appreciate it. But the next letter is very interesting because it says we've rewritten our land use policy laws and all development in the future is going to be determined by ecological function. And so th this is very interesting because there's 15 years of data now about this and it's very, it's very successful. So let's, let's get off of this. There's too much of this. Um, and, uh, So, I don't, what, what should I talk about? Well, let's go to your restoration camps, John, because again, I think you're now doing some things around the world in a lot of different ecosystems at a scale that maybe everybody can understand that I think you should be very proud of. And tell us where that's at, what maybe these folks might be able to do to help with that. Okay, well, uh, Mark, can you skip uh, common land is, I, I, I recommend you all go to commonland.com 
to learn about common land. But if you want to learn about the camps, let's skip the common land bit and go to to uh, ecosystem restoration camps. Yeah, there we go. So I was dreaming about this when I was learning, and what I came, what I, when when I was dreaming, are you rolling on that? Is it moving? So, um, yeah. So basically, this dream wouldn't leave until I wrote that essay. And when I wrote that essay, then tens of thousands of people started to say, well, let, let's do that. We want that. So the first camp was in Spain in um, 2017. And the second camp was in Mexico. And the third, you know, anyway, you know, every, year by year. And now there's 65 camps in just six years. So this is growing. And in these camps, people are studying together. I, I call it collaborative inquiry for collective intelligence. So they're all talking about like, how does this system work? What, what is our role in the system? And, and, they're, and they're working on it and they're having fun. So what I kind of realized was if, if we're going to we're facing these situations and if we don't do anything, it's just gonna get worse. But if we do something, we could actually protect small communities and grow the, the systems and learn together how we do this because no individual is able to restore the earth. It's humanity acting together that can do this. So, gathering everyone together. So if, if, you, if you're interested in the ecological or ecosystem restoration camps and communities, then you should definitely go to ecosystemrestorationcommunities.org and find out all about it. And you know, the way it started was people were sharing 10 euros per month. We had the first foundation was a European foundation. Now there are two foundations. One is a European one and one is a US foundation. And it's, you know, people in America shared $10 and the people in Europe shared 10 euros per month. And if we get to a million people, we'll have a million, uh, 120 million euros per year to invest in these camps. And in these camps, we're talking about how do you build up the social infrastructure necessary to do this so we can make communal gardens. And these communal gardens can be curated by master gardeners. So we can all study how to be master gardeners. And then we, we, we can have the food going to community kitchens. Now the first camp in the United States was in paradise after the terrible fire in California. And what was interesting is that thousands, hundreds and thousands of people were able to go to Paradise, California, and help the people in Paradise to rebuild. In 1964, to... Lyndon Johnson launched his War on Poverty in Martin County, which is where Camp Appalachia Renewal is located. And even with that, poverty is still prevalent in the, in the area. It's one of the worst uh, impacted regions of the United States in terms of long-term poverty. Our intent is to show that through ecosystem restoration, we can build a platform for sustainable use of these lands that can help create good, fulfilling, um, 
job prospects for the people of this area? So that's Appalachian Renewal in Kentucky. But there are now camps in, in South and Central America, in North America, in Africa, in Europe, in the Middle East, and in Asia. So basically all over the world, what we're finding is that restoration is not culturally specific. So we could actually, as a, as a species, adopt this. And when we understand it, we can all work together. And the highest levels of this could be making um, by, um, by sort of botanical sanctuaries where we're, we're saving the most endangered species. That, that, that is, of course, hugely valuable when we do that. So I think we could, we could drop off of this one now. And uh, there's, there's a lot more, but um, let's continue and talk about some other things. The camps movement, you know, join it, own it. You know, it's yours. It belongs to everybody. It doesn't, it's not about institution building. It's about both uh, the localized activity and then happening simultaneously on a, on a planetary scale. So if we don't do this, locally, we're not going to make it. But if we don't do it everywhere at the same time, we're not going to make it either. So that's why this is happening. And, and John, real quick, you and I haven't been able to talk about this yet. Maybe we glimpsed at it. But 18 years ago, I started an ecological restoration on a property that had been horribly degraded for at least the last 100 years since the um, since the, the white man colonized the area that I'm in. And I live in an area, I lived then. I just moved literally right now. This is why I've got white walls behind me, which I've never had before. Um, out to Idaho, where I'm going to do the same kind of a thing on a 260-acre property. But this property that I started on um, 17 years ago was about 1,000 acres. And it was highly degraded through grazing primarily, but mainly the lack of water and water going underground because of the grazing. Bottom line, 17 years later, you would never, it, it has had the kind of remarkable change that you showed on the, the, Lusk, the Lusk Plateau in China. You, you would never know it was just the same place that I was at um, 17 years ago. And a lot of it was luck. I, we did some things that seemed to make sense and we were able to get a lot of people to help. So over those 17 years, there's been probably 150 people that have done hands-on work to get things to work. We've been taught by the best with Mark Shepard and Lane Ingham and others uh, to, for the kinds of things to do uh, in the ecosystem and, and it has worked there. And so now we're moving on to another arid um, mountainous west kind of area here in the Boise, Idaho area. And we're going to do a similar thing with 260 acres that have been horribly degraded in kind of the same sort of way. So we'll have more discussions of that later. There were a lot of really good questions already, John. Let's try to, to, to hit on a few of those. Um, let me just, uh, I'm going to go to the Q&A here. Um, yeah, to continue on with some of those restoration projects and to follow up on those camps, uh, people are asking about examples for urban and suburban restoration. Uh, can you give any uh, hopeful inspiration about that kind of work? Yeah. 
Well, there's a there's a lovely group in Hollywood called the Bird House, and that was the first uh, urban camp that we've had, and they they have um, been doing gray water recycling in the Hollywood Hills, right under the Hollywood sign, and they can lower the temperatures by 10, 15 degrees in the hot hottest periods, and they can maintain vegetative cover and moisture in the soils by doing that. So that's starting to affect um, city planning and, and, and codes. And they're also being asked, they have a, they have a, a affiliated group called the um, Soil Sponge Initiative that goes out and treats people's front yards, side yards, backyards, and they do it with like 20 people and a couple of pickup trucks filled with mulch and, and compost and, and they reseed and they, 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 they can do it quickly. And so everybody who does that has a result. There are also urban agricultural systems which are uh, emerging that are quite useful that we see. And I think this, the Chinese ultimately in terms of small, small villages and countryside villages, they're gonna have a lot to say about this as well as in Spain and Portugal and, and maybe in, in places like Tunisia and Morocco. So as soon as we start stop with the politics and we start with ecology, then everybody has something to contribute and, and everybody has something to do, which is not just for themselves, but for the, for the good of all. So I think there's, there's a high probability we can do a lot in those areas. Thank you. Go ahead, passing it on to you, Wayne. You had some questions ready. Yeah, um, again, uh, there was several questions about um, other examples of, of loss areas. And one I mentioned was that the discussion about the Palouse Prairie where it's a highly successful for the time being, but it's clear that the soil levels have decreased over the years and it's not gonna be that way over the long term. So again, some places in the US, we just haven't seen it yet. It's not far enough in, as John said earlier, from the uh, degradation side. Um, what else are you seeing there, uh, Lisa? I Sure, I have another one that's uh, related to the urban and suburban. Someone was asking about um, if you have any in, uh, experience or opinion about some of these rail to trail conservation easements as uh, positive steps for neighborhoods for uh, food forest slash preserves. Well, I think it's, Any a, it's, a good, it's a good idea. We have one camp, Camp Coyote in California that was doing that. I think they're about to relocate, but uh, they, were, they were taking public lands with agreement and uh, restoring areas. But uh, I think one of the things that I think is, is critically important is to realize that we, we need to have sort of uh, social infrastructure. So this concept of the communal gardens connected to community uh, kitchens can end hunger. So if the, if the community says, let's not have any hunger, we don't have to like have processed foods and packaging and cans and, and, and food banks. We can grow food and prepare food and 
processed food and ferment food and, you know, save food, store food for everybody. And we can welcome everyone who's hungry to come and participate. So then instead of paying for it, they come and do it, you know, or, or you know, having it being paid for, they come and help to garden and they help to, to process food. And we can have these food storage and food processing facilities that are for the communities. And, and so no one needs to go hungry. And this is purposeful. And we're seeing that working in all different parts of the world. So it's very possible to do this in Africa or Middle East or Central America or South America. And we need to figure out how to do this in, in North America. And we also need to see we can have co-working environments. With, and I, I want to talk to you, Wayne, about Idaho because there's the Clean, Clean World Museum opening up. And I just spoke in Utah to the conserv Congressional Conservative Climate Caucus. And I was uh, approached by someone who has this, this Clean World Museum in Idaho. And it has 50 acres and it has a 6,000 foot building and they want to use it. It was built by a cleaning service person who, who got successful in the cleaning business and now it's the clean world, but it, they wanna shift it and they could have a botanical sanctuary there. They could do stream, stream restoration with volunteers. They could do training, they could have uh, creator space, co-working environments, and and a and a big museum about this. So I and that's in Idaho. So I want to I want to connect yeah, you. Let's, let's talk about that. that. That's exciting. So I think all that social infrastructure needs to happen everywhere. So once you realize this, it should work very well in the United States because there's there's enough resources to do this. If we can bake a kitchen for ourselves, we can definitely make a kitchen for the community. You know so. Let's do that and then make sure that everyone in the community is fed. Then you don't have hunger and you, you sort of make sure it has a shower room and a, and a clothing bank. And, you know, basically you can eliminate a lot of the kind of creepy stuff that you see from homelessness and, and hunger and get people back on track to be productive and, and functional. Don't but anyway... You got cut off earlier on the on the paradise in that video. What what's going on at paradise now? What a year and a half or so later, have the people have been continuing to to follow something in a positive way as they rebuild there in paradise. There's a lot of training. Two camps, two different camps now in in the area. Uh, a lot of training. It's also with Elaine Ingham and the Soil Food Web School. It's also the Permaculture Action Network, and I mean, they're also the people from from um, um, Burners Without Borders, and, and all kinds of different people can come together. And I think that's the that's the key is mass collaboration, not not like this is my my project or something. This is this is humanity coming together to transform human civilization at this time, because if we don't, then we face predictable catastrophic outcomes. So if we don't want to experience these 
predictable catastrophic outcomes. We need to do something completely different. And here's something which is positive, kind, compassionate, functional, and proven. So we're ready to do this now. We're doing it. And if the more people who do this, the larger it becomes and the more successful it becomes. And then I think it's so attractive once you're there, you'd rather play volleyball and, and have dinner a lot than have war or, you know, right. and if you want to fight fires or you want to, you know, uh, take care of flooding and, you know, infiltrate and retain moisture so you don't have flooding and you don't have drought, then you need a community together to do it. So get everybody together to do it. And, and here's an interesting one, just an observation. I'm a little bit like you, John, an observer. Last night, I was driving through uh, the, the southern part of Idaho and stopped to get fuel. And a, about 20 trucks flew into this gas station. And they were all firefighters from um, Eastern Nebraska going to Oregon to do firefighting. And they were having fun. Again, it sounds horrid. I mean, it, it, they're going out to deal with something, but these were mostly men. There were women there too, and, they, and they call themselves the Camillids. And I don't know why they picked camels to be a, a firefighting name, but it was fun. It all came down to the fun side of things, John. If you do what you love in life, you're going to do good. And yet so many of us are doing things that aren't fun. I've been very fortunate in my life. I've been able to do what I love most of my life. And I've chosen to. In some cases, I've, I've chosen not to do things just because they weren't going to be things I was passionate about. And we've got we to show people how they could do that. And the homeless situation. Why not put urban gardens in, in these places where instead they're just putting tents everywhere? I mean, we, we can deal with this if we, if we put our minds to it. You know, Mark, could you put up the last, the, the um, contact information in case yeah, anybody wants to get in touch be, with me? Because we are at the top of the hour, everybody, and, and we want to be very um, cognizant of John and respectful of his time and let him get off here. We'll take a couple, maybe one or two last questions, but why don't you put the contact up so everybody can get in touch? Please, everybody, This I'm only saying this just because it's happened. I've been giving money to... Um, to the ecosystem restoration camp since the very first time I heard John talk about it, which I think was probably 17. And, you know, you think about $10 a month. It's not a lot, but yet look at what that's now, $10 over, what would that be now, John? Um, uh, 12 six times years. seven, six years is, um, that's almost $1,000 now or more, right? And, and so just do it, $10, everybody. That's all you would need to do. Um, I, I like to think of it as two cups of coffee yeah, a month. Yeah, yeah. Two so cups if, you, of if, you could, if you can spare two cups of coffee a month, you might. Uh, I'm not sure you it. can a cup of coffee more. So that, that's probably a cup and three-fourths. Um, <laughs> so, but here we go, everybody. Here's John's contact. John, this was just awesome. Everybody, if you know, in our world, you can push, you can either put ones into the chat or push the little hearts or whatever those things you can do to tell us if you enjoyed this from John, please. 
Um, and we'll, we're going to sign off here in just a little bit. Um, yeah, there are lots of comments in the, in the questions and answers and comment section. There's a lot of appreciation, John, for everything you've been talking about, all the work you've been doing, and all the inspiration that you offer to people. So Yeah, I've so seen much. a bunch of the hearts coming up here, which is the way you're going to applaud online. So we love that. Thank you so much. John, I want to meet with you live sometime. I'd love to come over and see you in China. I got to figure out how I can get to do that sometime. So. Okay, well, um, not a problem. I think there's a, a, a big development in China with the, the small rural uh, uh, restoration efforts because those communities really would like to keep their people from going into the urban areas where they're, they're disadvantaged, basically, if you go into the urban areas and you don't have the same education and, and uh, skill, you, it's, not as, it's not as nice for you. So it's better if they stay in the countryside, but they have everything that they need. So that's what the design efforts are leaning in that direction so that um, everyone can uh, have what they, what, what they need, but also stay in a beautiful area without pollution, without overcrowding. And that's actually also what people in Europe are thinking about. So we have camps developing in Somalia, very, very interesting. In Colorado, we have Native Americans with buffalo. In Kentucky, I, I highly recommend the uh, Appalachian Renewal Project. It has 7,000 acres. And uh, it, it, it's really something where young people could build their lives and their livelihoods there. And there could be more of that because there's 1.5 million acres of that type of mountaintop removal landscapes throughout Appalachia. Appalachia. I'm, I'm supposed to say Appalachia. It is Appalachia, John. Yeah, Appalachia. They do correct or, you. Or they'll throw an, an Appalachia. That's mm -hmm. how I'm, I'm trying to remember it. The hillbillies, and that's where that word comes from, is uh, from Appalachia. So, yeah. well, everybody, thank you for being an awesome audience. I think everybody stuck around through this whole thing. And John, the numbers were a little bigger than what I said they'd be, which is very cool. Um, you were getting a lot of interest. Please put some thoughts and prayers in this and whatever you do to, to just, you know, wish John the best of his luck. John, I, I want to stay connected. We'll talk about Idaho, that uh, project you mentioned, and let's, uh, let's make the world a better place. Let's be a colonomic, everybody. Show people how they can make a little money making the planet better. And Mark, why don't you take us out? Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT Community Podcast.